The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. And good afternoon and welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show in this afternoon. So glad to be with you. And it's always a good day. And like I tell people, there are no alternative facts on this show. I try to give it to you right and the real as much as possible. So I'm excited because yesterday we kicked off the show with a conversation about the Women's March. And I uh, want to kind of continue that but I also want to talk about where we go from here and we have some great guests who are joining us some in studio and some on the phone all across the country so in studio today is none other than my girlfriend my soror um, who was also the lead national organizer um, and head of logistics for the Women's March none other than Janae Ingram you can find her on Twitter at Janae J-A-N-A-Y E underscore Ingram I N G R A M Janae, welcome to the welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's so good to be here with you again, and this time talking about the Women's March. Um, such a huge effort, and so exciting. And so I'm, I'm glad to be here. Yay. <laughs> then also joining us on the phone, first time to the show, none other than Feminista Jones. If you don't follow her on Twitter, get your life together. You can find her at Feminista, F-E-M-I-N-I-S-T-A-J-O-N-E-S. She's an activist, a writer, and she is now here on the Leslie Marshall Show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And last but definitely not least is Madiha Ahasain. She is a staff attorney at Muslim Advocates. And Madiha, we are so happy that you were able to join us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be part of the conversation. And if you want to join in the conversation, and I'd love to hear from you, go ahead and give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Or you can follow the conversation on Twitter at Michelle with one L, Jawando, J-A-W-A-N-D-O, or at Leslie Marshall. So, Janae, let's go right in. You had... A front row seat to one of the largest protest events in our nation's history. What was that like? Oh, God. Um, yeah, I had more than a front row seat. <laughs> um, I had a... I had a behind-the-scenes look. Um, not that this is anything new. Um, I've done it before, but I, I, I will say this has been different than any other uh, demonstration I've ever planned. Um, the energy just even coming in from the very beginning was, was palpable at every turn. Um, and so we, we knew that we would have large numbers. We were tracking somewhere around uh, 800,000 people showing up in D.C. We had... Um, over a million people show up. We're still trying to pin down the numbers exactly. We know we had the second highest metro usage in history here in Washington, D.C., behind uh, the inauguration of President Barack Obama in 2009, that first inauguration. Um, and so it was it was overwhelming to be there, um, obviously, in a positive way. You had so many issues that were being raised and addressed um, from the stage. You saw people with signs that understood sort of the need that this is not just about 
about a singular issue, but really that this is about bringing together the issues in an intersectional nature um, such that, you know, most women deal with on a daily basis. We're dealing with issues not just from a single lens, but from so many vantage points. And so it was an, an amazing um, experience to just witness that, to witness the solidarity and the camaraderie. And then obviously when you turned on the news and saw what was, what was happening in cities throughout the country and throughout the globe, mm-hmm. I mean, you even had women who were in the hospital in L.A. marching in the hospital wing. Um, you had women in Antarctica who were aboard a freighter who were marching and standing with us in solidarity and you had the large turnout in cities all across the u.s and and globally so i think it speaks to a real um a real passion Mm -hmm. for change and for exclaiming that women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights and yet the day after we had uh or i should say two days after we had this historic march and gathering of women all across the world um we saw men white men standing in a room uh, taking away health care and, and, and women's reproductive, reproductive, right, re- reproductive rights, not even in the U.S. This is global. That's right. That's and so right. it was important for us to see the women across the, the world standing with us because we understand we're in a much more global society and all of these issues are intertwined. So, Feminisa, you know, that's a, a, a great kind of segue because I think one key factor that I think a lot of people wanted to make sure was understood that the march was an entry point for some women but some women had been doing a lot of this work and you know you whether it's on a lot of your anti-poverty work or you know your sex positive writings have kind of been one of those women so just kind of tell us about kind of where you've been the last five days seeing what's been happening. Um, you know, I'm going to be honest. It's you know, I came into the Philadelphia march um, on the back end, unfortunately, and and I, you know, I had a great conversation with the organizers who admitted that they hadn't done anything like this before. And one of the things I challenged them to do is, you know, say when you're go- when you're sitting at a table and you're putting together something like that, you need to look around and see who's sitting there and who's not. Mm-hmm. There were no black women organizers. There were no trans women organizers. Um, there were not. I think there was one woman that was like half Cuban, and then they had a black man and you know another white man on the board and I was like I don't understand how this happens in a city like Philadelphia that is so incredibly black and so we had a very real conversation and I told him that the racial was violence and so I started I partnered with um my friend Tiffany, who works for one of our local senators here, and, you know, we, we, we pulled some folks in, and we got some folks, you know, the, in the last minute, really, to right. speak at this march, because otherwise the march would have been as white as it possibly could have been. And uh-huh. that was some of the critiques that I heard about some of the, the other marches in other cities, is that they were not as intersectional as they needed to be. So uh-huh. when I got up on the stage, I decided I was going to remind people that there is no feminism without black women and without women of color, and that we can't alienate um, folks who don't have a certain image or what have you. Um, Other than that, I would say we had an estimated 50,000 here in Philadelphia, which was fantastic. Um, We had, I mean, what I loved was seeing all the children there. Mm. Um, But but my thing is this, you know, I I tend to be on the more radical side of things, and I'm like, you know, part of why I don't do these marches and things like that, because I'm always thinking they can come and drop bombs on all of us. Mm. Um, I can't I'm like, I'm an immigrant. Speak. They could right, still like, I just... Came, exactly, <laughs> like, I came in, I came in, I was like, let me do my talk or whatever, but, you know, I'm about that that life. I really am about that life. And I'm, you know, Tamika and, and Linda and uh, Carmen, those are my sisters. Like, I've laid in the street with those women. So I'm like, I'm down for the cause. I'm about to go speak at a rally as soon as I get off of this. But I'm like, we have to keep working. 
And right. it's not just about coming to the marches. The marches are great, and they really piss people off. But it's like, okay, if we can get even a tenth of the people who went to these marches to actually right. commit to taking an hour of their time a week, just one hour a week, right. towards fighting and resisting and doing their parts as citizens, that's when we'll begin to see the change that we need to make. But right now, part of why we're not seeing the change is because people don't realize that they are allowed to be engaged citizens. These elected officials are public officials. They work for us. That's right. That's right. That's the bottom line. And we act like they're like these rock stars and these gods or whatever. No, they work for us. So we absolutely have to hold them accountable. Show up at their offices, call them, email them, tweet them, write them. Make sure they remember who they're responsible for. And that's how we see change happen. That's right. And Madiha, you know, immediately after we talked about the global gag rule, but we are anticipating the Muslim ban coming down any minute. Kind of what... How, how do you live in this space right now? How are you reacting? Yeah, so, you know, it's it's really interesting to see um, what's been going on this, this first week of um, President Trump in office. Um, a lot of the things that we heard during the election season um, and, you know, in the days kind of right around the final results of the election, I think people were not really sure what everything was going to look like. We have been hearing about the idea of a quote-unquote Muslim ban for quite some time now, with this, you know, the idea of um, banning refugees from certain countries came out first in 2015, towards the end of 2015, and you had local officials talking about how they weren't going to allow refugees um, coming from certain countries because of possible links to terrorism. and. I think many of us have been just kind of at the edge of our seat waiting to see what would actually happen and what it would look like. All of the gearing up for this, everything that we were doing has always been, well, we don't exactly know what it's going to look like. And now here we have, we're like minutes, moments away from uh, an executive order that is probably what we're going to call the first step towards a Muslim ban. It's not outright Mm -hmm. a ban like Mm -hmm. we had thought, but it really is... He's he's heading on that path towards a Muslim ban. So when we come back from the break, one of the things that I want to do is just give people a sense of now that you've you've attended a march or you've heard kind of what's pending, how are you each directing people to get engaged? Because I love our listeners and I just always want to make sure they know what's the step next step for them to engage. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show, and we will be right back after the break. Leslie Marshall, the simple truth in a complicated world. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm back in studio with my guests, Janae Ingram, uh, Feminista Jones, and Mahadiha Hassan. And we have a caller from Carolyn in Massachusetts. Carolyn, welcome to the show. All right. Well, that gives me an opportunity to kind of kind of pick up where we were, because one of the questions that Carolyn did raise is there was a component of... Um, a racial aspect at the 
march and kind of leading up to it and you know how do we reconcile the fact that like 53 percent of our white sisters kind of did not support hillary clinton and voted for donald trump and so feminista let me just start with you because i know you've done some writing about this but um how did you reconcile that and how did how did you overcome and what are you telling people about how they can get past that um honestly i don't it's not a factor to me um black women have always blazed our own trails and we haven't relied on white women to help us with anything so we're going to do what we're going to do i mean i i it came as no surprise to me i mean this is still america right mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, people you know we're as black women expected to prioritize race over gender but then we get confused when white women do the same thing it's about mm -hmm. the way that america works mm -hmm. so i wasn't surprised by that what i did focus and i continue to focus my energy on is how we can do what we need to do to make the progress in our communities and so That's when right. i think about next steps i think about how do we support black women uh who want to run for office right you know what do, what do we need to do with community what, how do we get our finances together our you know emotional support all mm -hmm. those kinds of things how are we holding our local representatives accountable particularly when we have um black men that have been elected how are we showing up and saying hey don't forget who got you here mm -hmm. Let's Mm -hmm. work on this issue in our community because I think that we have to kind of work in our pockets. We can address the federal issues and that's great, but a lot of the things that affect our daily lives are happening at the local level, so the city and the state level. And that's where we have the true direct power. So we can galvanize people in these cities and in these smaller towns to show up at community forums, to show up when it's time to vote every single election, to hold people accountable in between. If you can, you can commit to making one call a week to your local representative that's more than enough. Trust yep. me, they'll get to know you. Because and they've never heard that before. That's right. <laughs> exactly. They so few people actually call them, they'll get to know who you are. That's and right. You start leveraging that connection in your community and working on those issues. And mm -hmm. that's where I think we can start and make real change. And Mahadiha, you know, one of the things that I was happy to see and you know we can we can do a whole nother show about online activism versus being out in these streets as I say but mm -hmm. you know seeing people say no ban no wall yesterday as part of their hashtags of solidarity you know have you felt that there's been a different um, kind of intersection of allies supporting you in the work that you're doing absolutely I think that these types of issues are really coming to the forefront in an, in a way that I have never seen before in the space of working at a legal advocacy organization. We mm -hmm. are very much, you know, in, in the weeds when we talk about legal issues, but there is a huge component of advocacy kind of across the country that is critical to the work that we're doing. And hashtags like No Ban, No Wall and just solidarity in, in every aspect of um, these issues is really, really important. Just like when you talk about the march, you had Muslim women part of the march, you had Jewish women part of the march, and all across, you know, faith communities and backgrounds and different races and a different um, uh, backgrounds of life and wherever it was that they were coming from, people were coming together to show that there is resistance to a factor that is impacting all of us in our daily lives. And the intersectionality of these issues is going to be more important than it ever has been before. That's right. You know, I tell people, I was like, I'm, my family is from the islands. My last name is African, and I'm a black woman in America. My very existence is resistance. Like, <laughs> like I live in this right. space, right? Every, But it, it's so important for others to kind of find what their thing is. And I know, Janae, you've been doing 
doing a lot of work in helping to train people so that they can find their thing so that they move and so what do you you know as we get ready to close out this program and I I, I love you ladies we're, we're going to do this one all I might give you the whole hour next time this was just like Let's way too it. fast but um, Janae you know how do you give women the find your space find what you need to resist well, I, I think part of it comes naturally, right? So as you just talked about your whole existence being in a resistance, you know the things that you have to, to fight for. But I think it is about education and conversation. Even um, as we talk about the very hard conversations of race that came up during this this process of coming together and doing a march that talked about um, issues from a woman's perspective, we speaking for myself as a black woman I had to make sure that my issues were at the center of the table that they were mm. not going to be forgotten or mm. lost mm-hmm. and it is it is that continual pushing and expansion of the table if you want to want to call it that that allows all of us to have a seat um, but it, it is about the things that matter most to you whether it's the things that you're fighting for in your very own home you mm-hmm. know be, if you're a woman and you're, you don't feel respected in your home that's a place to start if you are working right. um, and you are, you feel like you're not getting the promotion that the same guy next to you who does less work than you is getting. Well, Come then on. That's, that's a, See, a don't reason. Start preaching I'm in this saying, radio that's studio. That's a reason. You know, you know I'll you say wanna, in a minute. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, so we have lots of issues. We just have to be, make sure when, you know, people say hashtag stay woke, that means wake up to the things that are around you, the things that are in your life, and not just the things that are impacting you, but the things that are impacting each one of us. If we really want this movement to be strong, it's going to come in that intersectional nature, that the interweaving of the the issues that matter most to all of us. It's the the sign that you saw, if if any of you saw it on Instagram and Twitter, with the white guy who had the sign that said, "Hi, all you nice la- white ladies, are you going to be at the next Black Lives Matter protest?" Mm. Why? Because it means something more when all of us are fighting for the same issue, and it's not just the same chorus of people saying Black Lives Matter or saying, you know, we we need to protect our Muslim brothers and sisters. If only Muslim Muslim people are saying that we, you know, we're 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 losing at that game. We all need to come together and stand up for each other if we really want any of this to be a success. I so thank Janae Feminista and Mahadiha for joining me on today. This is definitely the beginning of the conversation and not the end. I tell people if there's one thing that I can do using this voice and with this on the radio and talking to all you great Leslie Marshall listeners is bringing voices like these women to the show. So thank you for joining us. We'll be right back after the break talking Trump, SCOTUS, and what's next on the Hill. Thank you, ladies, and we'll be back right after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Sally Marshall on the Leslie Marshall show. That's a shout out to Sally, one of our producers who's always doing great work here on the show. But this is the Leslie Marshall show and I'm your host for the day, Michelle Jawando. Always great to be back with you. And I appreciate some of our callers from our last segment wasn't able to get to everyone, but you can go ahead, give us a call and we'd love to hear from you. Now I'm back in studio with one of our guests. 
guest. He hasn't been back for a while, so I'm glad that we were able to bring him on today. That is none other than Ian Milheiser. He is the, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, but also serves as an editor, the justice editor at the one and only blog, Think Progress. You can find him often tweeting about things that you and I probably can't say, but Ian can. You That's can a good one. <laughs> You can find him on Twitter at I-M-I-L-L-H-I-S-E-R. Ian, welcome back to the show. It's good to be here. Thanks so much. Great to have you. And our first timer, so it's always great to have you in studio, David Brown. He's a former Hill staffer and associate at Brunswick. But Dave is joining us. He's a Seattle guy, so I know he's still a little sad about the Hawks. And you can find him on Twitter at Dave, D-A-V-E-B Brown, 2003. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. All right, guys. So I want to, like, go right into it. You know, for those who are followers of the show, you know, I'm often talking about the latest and greatest on the Supreme Court. And this Thursday, the big enchilada happens, mm -hmm. Ian. We hear we're going to get a justice. So what is the deal? Well, hopefully we won't get a justice, but we're going to get a nominee. <laughs> um, yeah, so Donald Trump has said that he's going to announce the nominee for the seat that the Republicans were so kind to hold open for him for a year. So nice. So nice on the Supreme Court. Um, he's down to three names, uh, three white men, um, according to most news reports, although it's possible he'll uh, depart from that list. All three are pretty doctrinaire conservatives. Two have very, very thick conservative records. Um, and, you know, this, this is a big deal. I mean, this is for which party controls the Supreme Court, because right now it's split four to four. That's right. It looks like Trump wants to put someone who would immediately add to the most conservative um, wing of the Supreme Court. Um, he, he doesn't seem interested in putting someone like a Sandra Day O'Connor or an Anthony Kennedy, who is at least convincible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and if he does succeed in appointing this person, then Republicans will control the Supreme Court for a very long time. At least 30 years. You know, one of the things that I mm. shared, every person on that list is under the age of 55. Yeah. And while we might not think that that's young in Supreme Court... <laughs> Uh, jurisprudence and just kind of what the norm is, that's really, really young. So your ability to kind of shape what the court will review over the next 30 years is is pretty immense. And Dave, you know, you and I were both on the Hill when we dealt with the last confirmation battle of Elena Kagan. Why don't you tell our listeners kind of what's it like being there during that time and what are you expecting coming out of the Hill next week? Yeah, so unfortunately, I missed I missed Kagan by about a month. Oh, did you? Uh, sadly, <laughs> but but I used to handle uh, judicial noms for for my old boss, Senator Patty Murray of Washington State. That's right. And you know, look, it's it's a frenetic time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a phenomenally partisan time. That's right. Uh, the in many respects, the entire world is watching what's happening in, in a play by play, minute by minute way. Mm -hmm. And you know, for for our side of the aisle. Uh, it's it's really this is the first this is the first real test of how we are going to go about uh, fulfilling our responsibility as the loyal opposition and really holding uh, President Trump 
and the Republican majority in the Congress to account. So a lot of scrutiny, a lot of, you know, being being honest, a lot of uh, um, raw nerves mm-hmm. and, and tempers um, and just extraordinary scrutiny of whomever uh, this nominee will turn out to be. But, you know, this is this is a question that some of us have been banding around. You know, how can we have a conversation like this is a normal president when today another president of a sovereign nation, Mexico, tweets back to our president because he tweeted last week, right. don't come if you if you won't pay for the wall. So this president then tweets to him, yeah, we're not coming. So there's that, Ian. Yeah, I, I mean... <laughs> What we heard over and over again from Senator Mitch McConnell and from other Republicans in the Senate uh, when Obama was president was they wouldn't confirm his nominee because we need to let the American people decide who the next president is going to be. Well, they decided, and three million more of them wanted Hillary Clinton to That's be right. president. <laughs> I, it's, I mean, look, yeah. it's, it's true, and not not only that, but but polling in, in battleground states tells us that even the people who voted for Donald Trump want the Democratic Party to be a check That's on right. his right. presidency. That's right. That's so right. there's 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 an inc- incredible tension here. And then, you know, later on, President Obama's favorability uh, ratings right now. I think the real question is, who's actually out of touch? Who's really out of sync? Right. Is it is it Mitch McConnell and, and his majority or frankly, is it the American people? Right. And there, there was a there was a poll that just came down today showing that Trump is at a 36 percent approval rating for our new president, yeah. which is like unprecedented. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, a, yeah. it's, it's yeah. an astoundingly low rating yeah. for any president at any point in their presidency. <laughs> and we're five days in, ladies right. and gentlemen. Let me let me bring in some of our great listeners. Oh, well, actually, we just dropped you. But listen, call back. <laughs> we're still here. Ian, I, I, I know I, I cut you off, but I, I do want to just highlight also something that seems to just be happening mm-hmm. at a frenetic pace, which is these executive orders. Right. You know, it seems like under the Obama administration, this was a very thoughtful, deliberative yeah. process. Many of us know many of the people who were in the council's office who yeah. spent time with the agency attorneys and then checking with the council's office and then checking again. And yet we have like every other second, it seems yeah. like, an executive order. I mean, what is this? Th- there is an extraordinary piece in Politico today. So normally what the process looks like when the president issues an executive order is there are weeks or sometimes months of consultations with the agencies. There's consultations with Capitol Hill. A lot of the time, people from the private sector are asked to weigh in, people from industry are asked to weigh in, people from labor. And the reason why is because all of these people have knowledge that the president doesn't necessarily have, and you don't want to get it wrong when you issue an executive order. Trump's process, and I'm not making this up, does not include anyone who doesn't A, work in the White House, and B, isn't named Steve. <laughs> or family member? Or, I, or family <laughs> member, yeah. I'm sure, yeah, I mean, it's possible that Jared Kushner's involved, but it's, it's been uh, Steve Bannon and Steve Miller, who are mm-hmm. two, two senior Trump advisors who've been writing these things without any um, I- input from the agencies. Now, I mean, if you know something about Steve Bannon, that alone is, is, is disturbing. But even if you don't, the idea that two guys named Steve could know enough 
to think about how what these orders are going to do to 300 million people in the United States of America. Um, you know that that is not something that any person is capable That's of. Right. Dave. Yeah. So I, you know I, I think we have to also think about what are the real world consequences, mm-hmm. not only of uh, in a policy way of what these orders seek to do, whether it's with the Affordable Care Act, whether it's with building a wall, mm-hmm. whether it's immigration, uh, Muslim ban, what have you. But there are also the ramifications for. Uh, are people abroad. We have men and women serving in uniform in the Middle East right now who are reading in the same way you and I are reading about orders that would ban the Red Cross from accessing Guantanamo Bay. They would bring back CIA dark sites. That's right. We have a president who praised torture as an effective tool yesterday uh, on, on, uh, on ABC. And you also have a Secretary of Defense and a CIA director who had absolutely, absolutely no, no idea, idea what this president <laughs> and this White House were doing. So Setting policy aside, there's also very serious national security issues that That's are implicated right. by this reckless approach. That's right. You know, so so one of the things that um, I I just wonder is, you know, Think Progress is is doing this really great piece, and for those who haven't gone to check it out, they literally cataloged. And this was hard because like Trump, Trump has a lot to say yeah. often. <laughs> 632 different promises that he made over the course of his campaign. And now the American people are, are kind of used to politicians not keeping their word. But with this president, he not only breaks his word, he creates a reality that right. is untrue, whether we're talking about this now voter fraud investigation. The only investigation I want to know about is what did Russia do and what does right. that tape that they have on you? Why is it so strong that you're going to attack Mexico? You're going to attack the Pope, but not Russia. So, like, I, j- I just want to see the tape. <laughs> yeah. Did, did you see the piece about the German golfer? Oh, oh, no. Oh, this, this is this is, this is the. Is, the I, mean, I haven't I, yeah. even seen. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, it's just too much. So, so Trump, the, the basis for his belief that there's widespread voter, voter fraud is a friend of him. A friend of his is this German PGA golfer who tried to vote and wasn't allowed to vote and complained apparently to Trump that there are a lot of people with brown skin behind him who were allowed to vote. Now, first of all, the reason why this guy wasn't allowed to vote is because he's, he's German, German and not American. And so, <laughs> as it turns out, there actually are not. <laughs> citizens trying to vote in this country. So it's actually even yeah. worse than that. So I, yeah. I read shortly before coming over here. Right. His daughter is now saying he's not even a friend of the president's and he was probably talking about a friend of his. So the story, it's hearsay <laughs> yeah. after hearsay after, after you hearsay. You can't keep track of it all. Um, but, you know, I, I do want to go back to, to something you said about, about Mexico. As we're sitting here, I just yeah. saw the, the Times is reporting that, that Trump wants to levy a 20% import tax on, on Mexican goods coming in and that's going to pay for, for the wall. for people who may not know, they are our third largest Largest trading partner, right, yeah. third right. largest trading partner. Dave. So, so you know, there, you you asked the question about Russia, and I've been spending a lot of time talking about Russia, and 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 it, whether we get to the bottom of this or not, all I can say is. And, and I feel conflicted saying this, but thank goodness for John McCain. Thank yes. goodness for yes. Lindsey Graham. Uh, thank goodness for Richard Burr. These are people who oh, are... I'll, who I'll are, never say that about Burr. Well, but I'm with you on, he, on Graham and, uh, and McCain. He's yeah. agreeing to stand up the committee in a way that I didn't think he would. But right. these are folks on, uh, on in the Republican Party that are, that are not afraid to take on mm-hmm. hard questions about what uh, Trump's campaign uh, did in relationship to Russia, what they knew, um, and frankly, what, what the American people deserve to know. It's so funny. I never 
thought that I would be at the place where I'm like, oh, I miss that George W. Bush. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm like, where's Jeb? <laughs> where's little Marco? You know, <laughs> Ian. Yeah, and I mean, I what I worry the most about, I think, you know, besides the possibility that he might launch a nuclear strike, like what I what I worry the most about is. American credibility isn't something we can get back once we spoil it. That's right. So, you know, Trump, we're going to have another election in 2020. Trump could lose. Yeah. And the next president is going to have to go to other foreign leaders and convince them to make deals with us, convince them to... Do an apology tour. Or something. Yeah. 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 But it's like going to have to convince them that they could trust what we could say. And if I'm the chancellor of Germany or I'm the president of France or, or wherever... What I'm going to say to the next president is, I trust you. But after what, what, what the last guy just saw showed me is that you're going to have an election in four years. And once that election happens, everything that the United States has ever told me could be thrown out the window. So I can't trust your country. That's and right. and that's, a, that's a terrifying position for us to be in. I think that's an incredibly, incredibly powerful Silly point. point. and. It, 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 for me, it, it manifests in two ways. One, it's, it's what you just said, Ian, in terms of how the rest of the world perceives us and how they now understand what has long been uh, a very traditional and important role of American leadership, mm-hmm. stable, predictable leadership mm-hmm. uh, that allows for a world order to function, for better or for worse, mm-hmm. but allows for rational actors right. to solve very hard problems. That's right. So that's, that's one point on the international stage. But domestically, it is revealed an extraordinary vulnerability in in how strong our institutions are. And I actually think, setting politics and policy aside, the single biggest thing that Donald Trump can do to hurt this country, I think he's actually already done. And that's to unravel faith in the durability of our democratic institutions. It's to undermine Mm. people's trust in government. Mm -hmm. And and frankly, to undermine their sense that we're all in this together and that right. there's a compact a that matters. Unity. That's right. You know, so so guys, I can't believe the segment. We're almost heading, getting to the end. What are you paying attention to over the next week? What do you think is going to come down the pike? Um, and, and what role of Congress? Like, are the Democrats going to be able to stand up? to this administration in any real way. You know, we we know that there are some members in the party that, you know, this week voted out Trump noms that people are like, hey, why did Ben Carson pass through committee with no opposition? I'm looking at you, Elizabeth Warren. You know, so so what are you paying attention to? What what are you focusing on over the next week? Well, with the Supreme Court nomination coming up, the first thing I want to see is a strong voice of opposition immediately. Mm -hmm. I mean, these people have records. I've been studying them. I know a lot of the people on the Senate Judiciary Committee. They've been studying them. So it's not a mystery. And, you know, the standard playbook is to say, okay, well, we're going to give them some time. But, like, that's theater. Like, they've had enough time to study these folks. And if they believe what Democrats claim to believe in, then they should know already that the answer is no. And I want to see some senators starting to say that right away. Dave, what are you looking for? I'm looking for what Paul Ryan does next. Hmm. I think Paul Ryan is a really interesting player in this grand chess game of ours. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to figure out when to challenge Trump, when to strategically retreat, 
How does he advance an agenda that is consistent with traditional Republican values that are at times aligned with the president and are at other times completely not aligned with mm-hmm. the president? And how to bring along a caucus that is everybody around this table knows has been historically tough. One last thought on the Supreme Court. I hear you. My fear, and I don't have an answer for this, the filibuster and protecting the filibuster in the Senate. Look, I tell people Mitch McConnell is going to do what he's going to do on the filibuster. What we have to do is we have to stand up. Ian Milheiser, Dave Brown, you have been a great guest. I hope you enjoyed. We're going to bring these guys back because you know there's a lot that's going to be happening on the Hill, on the court, and you can find it all here on the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Michelle Jawando. We'll be right back after the break. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. And we have our friend Victoria Jones from Talk Media News on the line. Victoria, welcome. Thank you very much. Always great to be back with you. So, big news of the day. Resignations at the State Department and Border Patrol. Tell us what's next. Yeah, these are mass resignations. Well, in a minor way, but also in a big way at the State Department. This is the entire senior level of management officials, according to the Washington Post, from the department's long-serving undersecretary for management, Patrick Kennedy, and the three other senior uh, foreign service officers who apparently don't want to stick around for the Trump era. They all uh, resigned Wednesday afternoon. So that's the four top people. Unexpectedly, this was. And then on the 20th, so that was just five days before, Two other very senior officials had re- had resigned. So that's the top six. Now, according to people who know, it's the biggest simultaneous departure of institutional memory that anyone can remember. And you can't replicate that because you can't bring it in from the private sector. People just don't know how to run something as complicated as the State Department. They just didn't want to be there. So what is the next step? You mean, you know, you're hearing about these um, resignations. I think the other thing that we heard today is that Trump's senior strategist, Steve Bannon, that he's been talking to the New York Times about the media, maybe about this last uh, story. No, he's been trashing the media. He spoke to the New York Times, and he said that news organizations have been humiliated by the election. The media should be embarrassed and humiliated and keep its mouth shut. And just listen for a while. I want you to quote this, he said. The media wow. here is the opposition party. They don't understand <laughs> this country. They do not understand why Donald Trump is the president of the United States. Wow. It's, an, it's a humiliating defeat that they will never wash away, that will always be here. Mm. I, oh, my word. I, I think someone needs to check out the First Amendment and stat. And then finally, we know that Trump was at the GOP retreat today in Philly. What was the latest there? Yes, he went to address the GOP retreat. And Theresa May, the prime minister of Great Britain, is also going to address them. Well, he started off by boasting about his win in, uh, in Philadelphia and in Pennsylvania. And he called on Republicans to help him enact what he called great and lasting change. But he didn't give them much details about his views on the key issues like health care and tax reform. 
So he said, this Congress is going to be the biggest Congress in decades, maybe ever. Um, but he just didn't give them the details, and he skipped a planned question and answer session. <laughs> so biggest Congress ever? What does he even mean by that? <laughs> uh, the, uh, the busiest Congress in, uh, ever. Busiest. Oh, well, well he, he, he's got a lot of things he wants them to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just be first off. I still can't get over the Steve Bannon piece um, and him saying that to the New York Times. He, just he, incredible. He said more. He said more. Uh, he said uh, he was uh, speaking initially about uh, defending Sean Spicer, the press secretary. Right. He was right. asked if uh, if he was concerned that Spicer had lost credibility with the news media. He chortled. Are you kidding me? What oh goodness! Well, Victoria, it's always great to have you from Talk Media News. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great being with you, and I'll be back again soon. Thanks, and take care.